19 to 31. A story that Jesus told. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Good morning. Uh, if you haven't met me, uh, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Uh, my dad, if you have never met him, uh, he is uh, a lover of telling a good story. In fact, my dad is a lover of telling a bad story as well. Uh, and uh, one of the things that is classic Angus McKenzie is he will tell you the same story seven or eight times. And so especially when a new member of the family comes in, so uh, when my wife Amy and I got married, for Dad it was just like a breath of fresh air because it was like, great, I can tell these 30 stories another 30 times. And so... Uh, that's dad and uh, there was a research company in America and they were paid millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars by Coke and Microsoft with the goal to discover what is it that shapes children into the adults that they are going to be. So what is it that shapes them into the adults they are going to be? And this is what all the research kind of company concluded was that the most formative thing for children was the stories that they were told. 
The stories that they were told around the dinner table, the stories that they were told at bedtime, the repeated stories that just became part of the family narrative. That we are a story-shaped people. And most of our brothers and sisters in non-Western countries get this far better than we do. We are a story-based people. I forget who said it, but someone said... um, uh, I don't care who writes the laws of the country. Just let me write the stories and the songs. Why? Because they knew what really shaped the people of a country. The stories and the songs. And so we're doing this short series through January reflecting on the different stories that Jesus tells. One of the greatest storytellers in, in human history. And he tells this story here in verse 19. There was a rich man. Sorry, it helps if I turn this on. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. That's kind of the color of the royal, of royalty and they were kind of rich and famous and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so Jesus tells a story of these two men, and these two men could not be more different from one another. One is clothed in purple and in Egyptian silk. Another is clothed in sores and seeping wounds. One is feasting on the inside. Another is starving on the outside. One is helpless to stop even the dogs from coming and licking his sores. And here's actually what's fascinating, is there's ambiguity here as to where are the dogs coming from? Who are the, whose are the dogs? Are, are they wild dogs? Or are they the rich man's dogs? Uh, John Nolan says this, he says, though the common view is that these dogs are wild, perhaps it is that these dogs are actually from the rich man's estates. Instead of a servant coming with fallen scraps, that is, according to what the law of Moses and the prophet said that the rich man should have done, given the leftovers of his food to this to this man so that he might fill his stomach, Instead of a servant coming with fallen scraps, the dogs have come from having consumed the scraps and continue their meal with the juices that ooze from the afflicted man's source. That these two men could not be more different from one another. And yet... Death comes to them both. 
that for all of his wealth, for all of his power, for all of his prestige, for all this man, the rich man, everyone at that time would have thought he is a man blessed by God. And Lazarus, whose name literally means God will be my helper, is, is a sick kind of ironic twist. God will be your helper. You are in squalor. In fact, the the term used is that you have been cast, laid at the rich man's gate. You haven't even been able to get there yourself. You cannot even keep the dogs away. That despite all, death comes to the rich and to the poor alike. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Here's what's fascinating in the story. Notice that only the rich man is buried. He gets a funeral. He likely had a very expensive funeral, a funeral where other wealthy elite gathered around and spoke honorably of him, said great things about him. He was such a nice guy. You know, here's the thing at funerals. Everyone just lifts them up to be this saintly figure. I was at a funeral once and, uh, I had to, I, I, I left because I saw, um, uh, an elderly lady who was upset leave at the back. And so I, I went out the back with her and, and just said, you know, are you going all right? And she said, I don't know who they're talking about, but that wasn't X, the person I knew. He is given this elaborate funeral. He is buried. Lazarus, Lazarus is likely taken outside, thrown in a cart where they would cart him off to, uh, there was a garbage dump at one of the cities just outside of kind of that area and region where they would just dump the bodies. And in fact, the, the wild dogs that was spoken of as being their den. And so, interestingly, it's almost as if these wild dogs have started on this Lazarus, even before he's died. They're kind of having an appetizer before the main meal that is soon to come, that is himself. But, while the rich man is buried and Lazarus is thrown into a garbage dump, Lazarus goes from being a lonely, suffering man, where? To being drawn as close as possible to Judaism's greatest patriarch. Their greatest hero, the hero of faith. He gets right as close as he can. He is at his breast. The beggar that was at the gate, now at Abraham's breast. The rich man died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. 
where he was in torment, sorry, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Verse 24, so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Firstly, let me just kind of throw out there what this parable, what this story isn't saying. This parable is not saying that the rich go to hell and the poor go to heaven. The rich man doesn't go to hell because he has, because he is wealthy. Just as Lazarus does not go to Abraham's side because he is poor. It is not wrong to own a nice house. It is not wrong to to go on a good holiday. It is not wrong to enjoy an expensive bottle of wine and to share it with your minister. It's not even the rich man's stinginess that sends him to hell. Just as it would be equally wrong to say that generosity gets you to heaven. Stinginess doesn't send you to hell. Rather, who is it that Jesus is speaking to? Verse 14, I'll I'll have to jump forward, sorry, here we go. Verse 14 tells us, just before this story, Jesus has uh, told a story about a man who uses his wealth wisely, the shrewd manager. And then you get this verse 14, which is kind of the meat in the sandwich, and then this second story. Verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They love money, the Pharisees, and they're sneering at him for these stories. And so Jesus says, fine, I'll tell you this other story of this rich man. This passage is saying that a love of money and an inability to part with it and a lack of compassion for others is a major sign of not listening or believing to the word of God. What Moses and the prophets have said. It's a major sign that your heart has not been transformed by the gospel. It is also uh, teaching us that hell is real. That it is a real place where real people go. And that what we do in this life, what you believe and what you say and do this week matters eternally. That how you spend your money matters more than you know. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and, and I don't care about your treasure. I care a lot about your heart. And so this is my concern when we have a, a budget, when we, we're like, oh, we've got a budget problem. And yes, we need to work hard to, to, to be wise and shrewd and to, to put together a budget well. But my concern is when we have a budget problem is, is that a sign that we've actually got a heart problem? 
For Jesus says, you can only serve one master, and we'll get there. That you cannot love, but you cannot love both God and money. I was on a holiday recently, and um, I was on this boat and uh, chatting to some other people that were on the boat on the tour as well, and uh, uh, we were kind of having some nibbles, and often, you know, it comes up, oh, what do you do with your life? And and so I say, you know, well, I'm, I'm actually a minister in a church in Sydney, because um, we're overseas, even though Gosford's not Sydney, you know, they don't know. And um, usually one of two things happens when people find out you're a minister. They uh, jump off the boat or, and that rarely happens, not jumping off the boat, but people rarely, though it does happen, people just get up and walk away. But most of the time people start sharing about what they believe or they just ask a whole bunch of questions. And so this lady, she was saying to me and, and she was like, Oh, yeah, I actually believe in God. I'm a really spiritual person, she said, but I just can't get my head around the idea that God, a loving God, would send people to hell. She said, I, I think ultimately in the end we all end up in, in the in the one place. And I said, okay, well, why do you believe that? And she said, well, because I just think there's light in all of us and there's good in all of us and all of us kind of love people, which, um, I, I, you know, is interesting because a part of me goes, really? But she says, you know, all of us love people and I think a loving God would understand that. And I said, well, what about people like Hitler? or people who prey on the vulnerable, people who prey on children, should they go to heaven? And she said, well, maybe not that same place, but maybe a place a bit lower, like a few stories down. And I wish I had asked her this. I wish I had asked her, what would you like God to do if people their whole life have said, what would be the fair thing for God to do if people have spent their whole life saying, I don't want anything to do with you, God? What should God do then? What would be the fair and just thing for God to do For people who have said, I don't want you, God. And this is kind of what the Bible puts forward as hell. That hell is God in the end ultimately giving people what they have been asking for their whole life. And for some, they have been their whole life saying, I don't want you, God. I want nothing to do with you. I I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And God's saying, fine. I will hand you over to your own desires. And you see it. You you actually see it when the rich man opens his mouth in this parable. Here's what's really interesting in the story. 
Notice what the rich man says. He called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Do you know whose job that was? The servants. That even despite the change in his position, even being in hell, the rich man is still speaking to Lazarus as if he is his servant. To bring him the water. And secondly, notice what he doesn't ask for. All the commentators say this. They say it's fascinating that the rich man not once says sorry. Did you notice that? All the commentators say it's fascinating that not once does he repent. Not once does he ask for forgiveness. In fact, he only ever asks for Lazarus to come down to him. Not once does he ask to go up to Lazarus. Hell is a place after we are dead where for those who have wanted to get away from God finally succeed. C.S. Lewis puts it brilliantly in his chapter on hell and the problem of pain. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins at all costs and to give them a fresh start? But he's already done so on Calvary. To forgive them? They won't ask for forgiveness. See, they've thrown that part of their heart away. To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. But notice, notice that the rich man, despite getting all that he wants, is in agony. He's in torment. In fact, if you have your passage in front of you, it, it's, you can read through about four or five times it repeats the word agony, torment. That hell is not a party. Is suffering. And he is speaking as a warning to those who love money. And you know what the problem with a story for those who love money is? The problem is this that nobody, next to nobody, thinks that they love money. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a Sydney guy, not a Gosford guy. There was a Sydney guy who uh, wrote a book called Beyond Greed. They did a massive, extensive survey, uh, hundreds and thousands of people, where they asked, um, "What were kind of your, what are your top three or top five kind of sins that you think you struggle with the most?" And what was fascinating was, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but what came back was 
only about 1% or less of people said greed. And here's what he said. He said, how can it be that in one of the wealthiest, most luxurious, comfortable cultures in the entirety of human history that only 1% of us struggle with greed? That a love of money is a dangerous and deadly and often self-blinding sin. That it is difficult to tell when you love money. Why? Because I am very good at justifying my own heart. Well, I'm just thinking about retirement. I'm just, I'm not building bigger barns. I'm just planning wisely. I'm being shrewd. Or I'm thinking about the kids. Or this is how we can do hospitality, right? But Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And it would be a whole lot easier if Jesus said, most people cannot serve both God and money. It would be a whole lot easier if Jesus said, most people can uh, cannot serve two masters. But Jesus Christ says, no, 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 if you love money, you don't love God. Your heart hasn't really been transformed by the word of God. This is, again, I want to be really clear on this. This is is not saying that there is anything wrong with being rich. Uh, There is nothing wrong with owning a beautiful house or driving a nice car. It is not about how much money you have or how hard you work or think or plan about money. You ought to work hard, think hard, plan well about money. That is good and biblical. But it is about how hard is it for you to let go of money. You have worked hard for it. How hard is it for you to let go of it? You see, it is not about how much money you have. I know plenty of rich people who love money, but equally I know plenty of poor people who also love money. In the parable, in the story, the rich man doesn't have lots of money. Lots of money has him. And the scary thing is that gold chains can bind a person as easily as iron. And so the question is, will we hear from the word of God? Will we hear from the prophets? Will we trust in the one whom God has sent and raised from the dead? Will we give up things we love? for things we love even more? Will we give up the things we love for the things we love even more? And the only way to do so, I think, is if we really see that Jesus is the rich man that we all need. That Jesus ultimately is the truest rich man. He is the one who 
gives up his riches that leaves his father's table so that we who are outside the gate in poverty and sores might not simply have the crumbs from his table but might be clothed in his linen that we might eat at his father's table wanting and lacking for nothing and that he would take our place cast outside the gate in ash and poverty from heaven's throne to open wounds, sores that are the price of grace, left to the mouths of the dogs. What is it that Jesus calls out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does anyone know what psalm that's from? Psalm 22. And while Jesus quotes the opening verses, he's thinking about the whole verse. Here's Psalm 22. The dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display and people stare and gloat over me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Here are the dogs outside the gate that are having their fill. And it is only when we see that Jesus is and was the rich man that we all needed that the pool of wealth the pool of wealth begins to fade. That we are able to be like him to look around and to give up our riches, our wealth for those that the word of God calls us to be generous to. How about I pray? Father, we pray that we might be a church that is shaped more and more by the word of God. We pray that we might be a church that is shaped more and more by the work of your son. We pray that we might be a church that more and more reflects his generosity that reflects his love and compassion that gives up the things that we love for the things that we love even more and we pray this for the glory of jesus amen